The scripture reading for the sermon this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. That's on page 956 if you're following along in the Pew Bible. And I'm not sure what page it is on your smartphone if you're following along on your smartphone. It's from the New International Version. When they had gone, the Magi, that is, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity for who were were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, this Christmas season, we um, look with new wonder what it meant for you to come in the flesh, to be born a baby, and for one of your first experiences to be that of a refugee. Open our eyes again to who you are. Would you show us a glimpse? And may we in that glimpse be changed. Ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The United Nations estimated in June 2014 that there were 50 million refugees worldwide. 50 million. I wouldn't be surprised if there are more, considering all the violence that has occurred in the Middle East following June 2014. 50 million people plus seeking refuge because their home is unsafe. Been forced by violence, coercion, or natural disaster to flee their place of home. Can you imagine not having a home? Of having home stripped away from you? It's not just the violence of having to leave your home. That's, that's hard enough. But, but all those collected cultural and social markers that tell you who you are, that bring meaning to your life, just totally stripped away. Those things that communicate story and tie generation to generation, totally uh, left behind. That familiar field where you played as a child, 
that familiar smell of air, the businesses that your parents and grandparents built and that you were taking over, just all gone. The blood, sweat, and tears robbed away, stripped away. I was struck this week reading some accounts of some uh, Iraqi Christians who uh, have been forced to flee from their homes because of uh, ISIS. Uh, and th- these are accounts from folks from Mosul, which has been a Christian center for like 1,600 years. Uh, listen to these quotes. They took away our homes and businesses and slaughtered our Bishop Faraj and priest Rakhid and Bulas. How could we possibly ever return there? Here's another quote. They put a red letter N on my house, signifying Nazrani, meaning Christian in Arabic, and declared it to be the property of Islamic State. I've lost my shop, everything I ever had in life, says Abu Suleiman, a man in his 60s from Mosul. How do I live after that? All of our human rights have been abused. Now I've heard that a militant from Afghanistan is living in my family's home. This is unbearable. One accounts of a teenager coming into town and declaring himself governor, uh, a place he'd never been before. Some other quotes. We only survived because we escaped from the city early in the morning. Other Christians had their cars, gold, money, even diapers stolen uh, from them by the Islamic State militants. Most are now penniless, fleeing with just the clothes on their backs and are dependent on the generosity of others. We walked to a safe area under Kurdish control and slept under the trees in Erbil until we arrived in Jordan, Ms. Suleiman says of her family of seven. This is a sadly common story, not just for Christians, but for uh, refugees worldwide. Uh, Violence, greed, corrupt ideologies, uprooting and disrupting people's lives, uh, making them to flee from their homes. So I want us to have this in context as we think about Jesus Christ, about God in the flesh becoming a refugee. Is it not humbling that he was a refugee? That this was one of his first experiences of having his life threatened by a cruel ruler, Herod. I want to show also this morning this uh, experience of Jesus as a refugee just fits the pattern of his life. Of, of God entering into our mess in Jesus Christ, not avoiding it, not waving a magic wand over our mess and our brokenness and our sin, but entering into it deeply, fully, in order to redeem it and to redeem us. And it's my hope that as we enter into this story together this morning that we'll be captivated again by Jesus, the one who became a refugee, so that we might find refuge in him everlasting, eternal refuge and shelter and home in him. And as we find our home in him, our refuge, our shelter, that can never be taken away, that we might be places, together and individual, places of refuge for those lost and wandering uh, in our world today. So let's dive into the story again. We learn in Matthew 2 that that strange piece of the nativity, which we just, uh, just sung about, That strange, special glow of the Christmas star was just violently disrupted by uh, a dream. Another angelic visitation to Joseph. This curiously born king was seriously imperiled 
And Joseph and Mary go from not having a place in the inn to having to flee for Egypt. What a contrast uh, from the previous dream we see in Matthew, Matthew 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, where an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Okay, so we have that, this glorious announcement that Mary is going to bear a son who will save people from their sins. Now, hold that in contrast with the next uh, message from the angel in chapter 2. Rise, Joseph, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. What contrast. Jesus will be born who will save people, save Israel from her sins, and you better get out of here. Somebody's trying to kill this child. I don't know. I wonder if Joseph, owner, uh, if that was a surprise to him. It certainly would have been to me. And the whole thing would have been surprising, of course. But that the one who uh, God has sent to be a savior uh, of Israel would be sought out to be killed. Uh, I wonder if there was some dissonance there in Joseph. Like, how do these two things square up? Now, I, I was thinking about this. I, I, I wondered if it was the same angel who gave that second message. I sure hope it was, because it'd be really crummy to like, be the bad news angel, you know? <laughs> Like there's a good news angel and a bad news angel. And I'm glad that the angel, uh, God chose not to disclose that information all at once. It came in pieces. Uh, first, there was to be the nativity, to, to really rejoice in, in the glory of, of the newborn, uh, Jesus. But not long after, uh, we realized that it's not going to be an easy road, an easy path. Uh, we learned that the route of the Savior his saving people from their sins isn't going to be a walk in the park. In fact, it will mean, as, as mentioned earlier, it means Jesus wading into the depth of our brokenness and all the brokenness of human experience and sin. And again, redeeming us uh, through his experience and triumph over it. That's how God works. And again, I think of Joseph and Mary, and I, I look to them as models of faith. Uh, as we think about them and how the call of God affected their life, how them saying yes to carrying Jesus meant for them uh, anything but ease. And I think we learned a valuable lesson. Our baptism in Christ, our anointing with the Holy Spirit, the calling of God upon our life to be a home for Christ doesn't mean that everything will be cozy and easy. It's more likely, it's very likely it'll mean the opposite. Responding to the call of God in your life means a a narrow road. It means letting go of other options, leaving shallow comforts, denying self. It means situations that would overwhelm you with fear, except for the voice of God saying, don't be afraid. But I'm convinced that it's in these trying circumstances and in these difficulties that the wondrous shape and contours of the grace of Jesus Christ becomes clear. The shelter of God, the refuge of God that's described in Psalm 23. Uh, Our heads are anointed with oil. Not in the place of ease and comfort, but in the presence of our enemies. We see that at work even now in the story, even here in the story of Joseph and Mary and, and the 
baby Jesus. But getting back to the story, it must have been really scary hearing the name Herod. Herod is trying to kill you, kill the son. Herod the Great was a sort of puppet king set up by Rome to rule the Jews. He was a wicked man, paranoid. He had uh, one of his wives executed. And after that, his wife's mother executed. And after that, a son executed. And after that, another son executed. And after that, another son executed. This guy was crazy. If you sniffed in the, his direction, if you had any sort of, any suspicion on, on his part of you're trying to grab power from him, you were done. So what a scary, Herod is trying uh, to get you. We learned earlier in Matthew that uh, when the Magi instructed Herod about the newborn king, he, he sort of feigned interest, but in reality he felt threatened. And uh, in 2.16 we learned that when he saw he'd been tricked, he became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, vicinity, and uh, all who were two years old and under. What a brutal thing that totally fits the historical record of, of who Herod was. Um, Bethlehem was quite a small town, and, and it's likely, scholars estimate, that uh, this probably would have meant the slaughter of about 20 children, 20 innocent children. But the little family escapes to Egypt, and they make the ironic trek to the place where God's people were once held captive, uh, once held bondage, in order to escape the bondage, the brutality of Herod himself. And then uh, later on, uh, uh, Joseph receives another dream we learn in Egypt, letting him know that he could return uh, when, when Herod had, had died. And, uh, of course, Herod's son, Archelaus, is waiting. This whole uh, Herodian dynasty, so you just want to avoid those folks. So they, they go up to Nazareth to escape uh, Archelaus. Now, as we look more closely at Matthew 2, I want to point out a couple uh, of Old Testament references that appear. And I think these are the key for really digging in and diving under this passage. Uh, we'll see references to Hosea 11.1 and Jeremiah 31.15. I want to spend a few moments just unpacking these because uh, they really illuminate the gravity of this passage. So this part's going to be a little uh, Bible nerdy, but, but it's really important. I think this could to change the way you, you think about the Old Testament references that appear in the New Testament. Um, uh, the first point is this, that references should be read in their Old Testament context. They're much more uh, illuminating in that way. Often a reference is not, just a meant, uh, is not meant to refer just to the one verse cited, but to the entire block or chunk of scripture where that, uh, where that verse is, is found. I've often read references before uh, as if they were sort of arbitrarily pulled from the Old Testament. Uh, as if the prophets were some sort of like esoteric soothsayers that New Testament authors just had to pull a verse or two from. Um, but they function in a far more profound way here. Uh, references to, to the prophets in the Old Testament uh, serve to illuminate in the life of Jesus. Serves to illustrate how Jesus fulfills fulfills the big story of God that he has been telling in and through his people Israel. I'll say that again. Uh, Old Testament references illuminate how Jesus fulfills the story God has been telling in and through his people Israel. The story that Jesus has come to fulfill. Uh, and this story is one of rescue and deliverance of God's people from captivity. The story takes a surprising and wonderful turn in Jesus. 
as God discloses that his rescue will not just be for Israel, but through Israel and, and her rescue, the rescue of the entire world. I, I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but if, as we look at uh, Matthew 2, 15, the verse, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a reference to Hosea 11.1. 1. You may see that in your Bible. It kind of points that out. Hosea, uh, this appears in Hosea, and it speaks of God calling his people out of Egypt. And also, as you read on in Hosea, of Israel's subsequent falling back into idolatry after her, after Israel being called out of slavery from Egypt. It's a story we all, we all know. If you're familiar with the Bible. Now, this reference does not mean that Matthew is just ignoring the context of Hosea or the history of Israel and just arbitrarily, again, pulling out Hosea 11.1 1, to talk about this event in the, the life of Jesus and the life of the Messiah. Rather, Matthew sees that Jesus, as writer Kevin DeYoung puts it, is filling up the redemptive historical purposes of the nation of Israel. Matthew can claim that this Hosea passage, which talks about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, is fulfilled in Jesus, because Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. Again, Jesus is embodying the story of Israel in his very life. Out of Egypt, Jesus is being called. In other words, Matthew sees an analogy, a correspondence between the history of Israel and the history of the Messiah, Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, as you read on in Matthew, Jesus is cast as uh, the true and faithful Israel. Matthew is retelling Israel's well-known story, but he's putting Jesus right in the middle of it. He's locating Jesus in the story of Israel, and he's locating Israel into the story of Jesus. This is a powerful thing. I'll explain why. Whereas Israel was delivered from uh, Egypt and fell back into idolatry, in Jesus we'll see that uh, as the embodiment of the new Israel in his life, he filled up, he fulfilled. Read, read in Matthew 2.15. So that the scripture could be fulfilled that the, the, the Israel, that um, the embodiment of the new Israel, the faithful son in Jesus, could fill up what was lacking in the first faithless son, Israel. All right, and let's, we'll fill this out a little bit more as we look at the second reference. The second reference is to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Uh, a really interesting reference. And the verse is, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah 31 is a phenomenal chapter in Jeremiah, which speaks of the glorious restoration of God's people from captivity in Babylon. But this, this verse falls right in the middle of that interesting, glorious restoration chapter. Um, Rachel, who's sort of the figurative mother of the tribes of Israel, uh, is weeping over the children of Israel who've been kept, taken captive in our exile in Babylon. So in, in Jeremiah, Rachel is figuratively weeping over uh, the, the, the situation of, of Israel. Um, but, but as you read on in Jeremiah 31, this is where, you know, the fam famous uh, scripture of, of sort of um, promising the new covenant comes from. And I'm going to read that. It's verse uh, 33 through 34. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my uh, law into their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So he had these two things held together. I, I believe Matthew's uh, drawing a direct line for the experience of Jesus and the event in his life to this promised restoration that happens in Jeremiah. So in one sense, yes, there is weeping in Ramah because of what Herod did in Bethlehem. Ramah is the general location of where, Bethlehem's, where Bethlehem is. Innocent children were killed, were killed there, and uh, there's weeping and mourning. But I, see, I believe Matthew sees this event as a direct line from God's promised deliverance of captives from, from the Jeremiah prophecy. And he sees this being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. In the midst of the suffering of Israel's exile, a new and glorious hope has appeared. A new covenant that will be written on their hearts um, and where they will know the Lord directly. Is this making sense? You see how Jesus is uh, embodying uh, the new Israel in his life, in his ex- experiences? Uh, N.T. Wright points out that in Jesus' time, there was a sense that, well, yes, the Babylonian captivity, which, was, which occurred in the 6th century B.C., had, had uh, ended. There was a still a, a real sense in Israel that Israel was still captive. They were still under um, the rule of foreign powers. You know, after Babylon, it was the Syrians and Persians and then the Greeks, and then finally their, their current Roman occupiers. This meant that the Jews in Jesus' day were still waiting for that glorious deliverance from captivity. When they were talking about a Messiah, they were talking about that deliverance from captivity. That's what they were hoping for. That a David-like Messiah would vanquish Israel's enemies, its occupiers, its oppressors. So it's my contention that Matthew wanted to show us how Jesus embodied in his own life, from the very beginning, the story of Israel, that of captivity in Egypt and exile in Babylon. He wanted to illustrate how God and Jesus Christ was taking upon himself, entering into the pain and suffering, and even shortcoming, sin of Israel, in order to redeem it. Through his life, his death, and ultimately his resurrection, we see that the reality the prophets spoke about has arrived. God's kingdom's arrived. And it's available to enter because of Jesus Christ, because of the advent of the true Israel, Jesus. Freedom from captivity has burst upon the scene, even amid the horrors of Herodian rule, even amid the horrors of Roman occupation. And this is incredibly good news for Israel, and it's incredibly good news for us. This is the heart of God. To show us love by identifying with us by entering into our situation, into the worst of our situation, that of being a refugee, that of having your life threatened, that of having to leave what's familiar and comfortable for what's unknown. This is good news for refugees, for those who have literally lost their homes because of violence, coercion, or or whatever else. And it's good news for us who feel lost and wondering, who feel exiled in our own skin, who feel uh, attacked and in need of shelter. God invites us in Jesus Christ to find our home in him, to abide in him, to live in him, to live in that place of shelter where we're safe, 
where our sins are forgiven, where our shortcomings are forgiven, where our, our uh, enslaved habits, those places where we're held captive, those things can be broken down in the shelter of his love. Nothing can keep us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus, the refugee, shows us. He became poor that we might become rich. He became a refugee that we might find refuge. And as we find that refuge in him, I believe it's his heart that we would become a place of refuge for others, a place of safety and security, a place of protection. People can find their true home. I... I had a, was it last week, the truth came out about me being a uh, former pest controller. I had a lot of fun jobs in my life. Another, I also worked in the Tenderloin in San Francisco for a little bit as a uh, case manager uh, in these, these apartment buildings that housed the mentally ill homeless. And man, I, it, what an interesting place to be in the, the Tenderloin. Actually, those things could have gone together pretty well. There's a lot of pest control needed in the Tenderloin. But it, it was wonderful to walk alongside these folks and just kind of hear their stories. Uh, I had an office that faced Jones Street, a pretty dicey street there. And I noticed one day toward the end of my work that this, this car broke down like right in front of the window. And it was this uh, young couple, uh, teenagers, maybe 17, 18, 19, I don't know. Uh, the girlfriend was pregnant, very pregnant. And their car broke down right there in the tenderloin. I don't know what they were doing in the tenderloin. But I went out there to see if I could help, and the car wouldn't start, so we just pushed it over to, um, you know, to a, a vacant spot where they could park, and uh, I offered to give them a ride to where they're going. And they didn't have any place to go. Teenaged and pregnant and nowhere to go. Just scrambling. You could tell the guy was trying to hold it together, trying to be like the man and trying to provide but he was just falling apart, scrambling to call people. They finally get a hold of somebody where they can stay for a little bit. And it, it was near Christmas time when I was with them. And who's was the spirits leading, perhaps. But I started thinking about Jesus and about Joseph and Mary, about Jesus, the refugee. And I thought, I need to share this story with this couple. That the Son of God was born into similar circumstances. Different circumstances, no doubt. But that God knows what it's like not to have a home. God knows what it's like to have to scramble to find safety. I saw the light in their eyes light up when they heard that. Small example. But they're all around. These people are all around. Maybe they're visibly homeless. Or maybe it's people just didn't need to hear that they don't have to be afraid. There's the God who loves them deeply. So open your door. Let's open our doors to our homes, to these people. Let's open our hearts to them. Opening uh, the door of our lives be the way people get to experience the refuge that you've experienced in Jesus Christ and the refuge available to them in Jesus. It's there for them waiting.
So let's pray. Oh God, you're wonderful. You're so good to us. You care with us, care for us with skin in the game. You don't see our situation and uh, stay away from it, but you enter into it deeply. You've experienced uh, really the, the hardship of what it means to be human. All the difficulty of exile and captivity, and you've redeemed us through your life. Pray that this morning we'd have a better glimpse of the glorious hope we have in you. We can see, Jesus, how you fulfilled the story of Israel and through that story have opened up the doors of the home of God to all of us. Lord, may we have faith to enter in, receiving the forgiveness of your sins and the new life that you offer us. You are a powerful God. And open our eyes to the ways you want us to be a place of refuge, a place of opening for others that they might experience the God who longs to give them refuge. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.